across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Welcome to the new dawn of a new Britain for the first show of the new EU-free era. We will be looking ahead to the trade talks, which are already being hijacked by those who think nothing's going to work. And we'll look back over the events of the weekend as well, when we finally did the deal at 11 o'clock on Friday night. You may well have been there if you were. Uh, we'd like to hear your stories because, of course, uh, one or two of us have issues with the way that the events of that evening were covered. First up this morning, though, we're asking the same question that we have asked many times before. How is it possible that a government that vows to crack down on recently released Islamic terrorists has been incapable of doing so? How is it possible for these dangerous, twisted and crazed individuals to get back on the streets where they can commit mayhem and murder? I'd like to thank the anti-terror police for having the street smarts to be following 20-year-old Sudesh Aman around yesterday as he embarks on what could have been a mass killing spree in South London. But why on earth should they have to do it? If lawyers are allowing dangerous criminals out onto our streets against the wishes of the Home Secretary and the government, then it can mean only one thing. They must be running the country. And that's not going to end well. There'll be many of you who will have all sorts of arguments about why it's important to keep the judiciary separate from the uh, legislature and how the government cannot be in charge of making sure that the laws are carried out properly because if they don't come after Islamic terrorists, they won't come after you. Well, I don't believe any of that and I don't agree with any of that. The safeguarding of the British public is the most important thing that this government is tasked with doing and if they can't do it because of lawyers, then I'm afraid you're going to have to get rid of the lawyers. 0344 499 We are streaming the show live on YouTube, on Facebook, and of course on Twitter as usual. We will bring you the latest on the coronavirus, which gets more bizarre by the day, particularly after you saw last week uh, those guys driving coaches without any protective gear on, ne sitting next to people wearing full hazmat suits. Something's very odd there. I don't know what it is, but we're going to get to the bottom of it. Coming up, I'll also be campaigning to stop former Labour deputy leader Tom Watson getting a peerage. Remember him? He's the guy that took all the money from Max Mosley uh, and made out that there was a a paedophile sex ring running uh, inside Parliament, which turned out to be complete and utter fantasy, cooked up by Carl Beach, a man who could only fool the stupid people. I'll also be investigating how Ofgem plans to rip the gas central heating out of your house and make you drive an electric car. And guess what? They want you to pay for the privilege as well. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me and watching me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm sure many of you will be delighted to hear the words on Monday, February the 3rd, that this is indeed the first show uh, that we have done in the Independent Republic, independent of the European Union, because we left at 11 o'clock on Friday night. Many of you were out celebrating that fact. Some of you were in London in Parliament Square. Some of you, I'm sure, were in other parts of the country doing it. I'd like to hear your stories. I'd like to hear your views. I'd like to hear what you, what you thought over the course of the weekend. As the Ramonas go on and on and on, some of them begging to not be called Ramonas anymore while Ramoning. It's like, what on earth is wrong with these people? 
We'll get to that a little bit later on, though, because Boris Johnson, of course, is involved in setting out his stall for some trade talks with the European Union. The European Union, as you would expect, are being, as usual, slightly difficult, uh, pretending that uh, they didn't make any promises that have changed. They're not going to make any promises that are going to be helpful. And in fact, it's all down to them precisely how it all works. Well, I'm afraid that's not the case. And Boris has basically said the Australia-style no-deal principle may end up with what we end up doing. So, we'll come on to that a little bit later on. Uh, we'll be talking to many of you about it. We'll also be talking to Mike Yardley, who's a security expert, uh, about the, the case of Sudesh Aman. But before we do that, let's talk to David Taub, uh, who's Director of Policy at Quilliam International. David, a very good morning to you and welcome. Hi, Mike. Good to speak to you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, um, I have to say, as terrible as this was, and it did happen in Streatham in South London, a place I know very well, um, yes. fortunately it didn't result in too many casualties. The injuries appear to have been relatively minor, but it could have been a very different case. It could have been a very different situation. And as Julie Hartley Brewer said, you know, we're getting a bit tired of all these isolated cases. And we do know that there are many people like uh, this character, Sudesh Aman, out there who have been released because nobody apparently can stop them from coming out of jail. Right, well... I I think I would start by defending lawyers. I am a lawyer. <laughs> somebody's got to do it. Do that. Well, somebody, well, I don't do it anymore. So I am a, no, I mean, I somebody's got to defend them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we live in a, a country that's defined by the rule of law and in which, uh, you know, the adversarial system means that everybody has representation. But you can, if you want to blame somebody, um, but I think the blame can fairly be put at the, at the feet of politicians who frame the laws. I mean, all judges do is interpret and apply the law. And all lawyers do is, is argue the case. But it's the, the, the Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that, David, isn't it? I mean, because the bottom line is, I, I believe, I believe, and, and you may differ from me on this, that we are living in a slightly different world now. Now, it's one thing to say everybody should have a second chance. It's one thing to say rehabilitation is, is a thing that we should have in our system. But it's an entirely different thing to say uh, that somebody who has vowed to die on the altar of Islamic fundamentalism has laughed his way into prison, has shown no remorse whatsoever. But when the police say this is a dangerous man who should not be released back out onto the streets, somehow there's no mechanism to stop that. So the, 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 politicians, the politicians are seemingly incapable of stopping it. But there was a, a mechanism to stop it. There were indeterminate sentences that could and were passed, uh, and those were abolished by the last government. Uh, I mean, there are a whole range of reasons that they were abolished. But, I mean, you know, it is not true that we didn't have uh, a mechanism for dealing with such people. We did, but that was a law that was abolished. Well, we don't currently have one, let's put it that way. That's true. And, I, I, and the other thing is that, you know, you can't retrospectively change the law. You can't uh, sentence somebody under a piece of legislation. And then after that sentence... Well, and that is a problem, and that is a problem which is a legal problem, not one that the politicians can change, right? Well, it's, but, but the politicians create that problem by... No, I get, no, I get that, but, no, I get that David. But what, I'm, what I'm saying is the situation which we are currently in, which is that we know there are several um, hundred people who have been released uh, early from their sentence for one reason or another, you might say because the law says that that can happen. It seems at the moment that the government is incapable of changing that. The problem isn't so much, you know, when they're, they're, they're released or whether that's determined to be halfway through their sentence or not. What you really need is a, is a mechanism whereby people who have been released by, from prison can be recalled to prison. They can do that for a determinate period of time under the existing regime. But if you've got indeterminate sentences, then it means you can recall those people to prison without a need for a further trial if there's any sign of them uh, reoffending. 
Right. And that, that is what we don't have at the moment. We right. But, but, but this is where I think we need to make a bit of a step change, is, is my argument this morning. I'm not just going to sit here. I'm not, I'm not just blaming lawyers. What I'm blaming is the no. system as such, right? And I think you will know as well as I do that there are lawyers who work within the system uh, to do everything they can to make sure that the bad guys uh, get out. Now they uh, might and there are lawyers who work on the other side who make sure that they stay in. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing with you about 90%. Which yes. Is, uh, but, I know. I think listen, listen I don't expect anyone to agree with you. Yeah, the laws have to be there. I don't expect anyone to agree with me 100%, David. Otherwise, the world would be a very strange place indeed. <laughs> right. but, but, you know, the point is this. We now know of two cases within the last two months where two people who were thought to be on, um, you know, watch lists... One was, was very different. The London Bridge attacker uh, was actually thought to be a complete sort of changed man. Right, he was so, a poster boy, wasn't he? Yeah, he really was. And, and I mean, I, I'm not going to say too much about that situation because I think it's tragic that the, the man who wanted him rehabilitated was one of the men who ended up dying on the, on the altar of his own sort of cause. But in this case, this, this guy was very much clearly not on the mend. He was very clearly still uh, a radicalised danger. And, I mean, you know, I, I know that it's, it's... I think the law needs to take account of the fact that these are different people. These are not, at your, of, you know, your average criminal. They're not people that are going to steal a car. They're not people that are going to burgle somebody's house. They want to slit somebody's throat, and nobody's going to stop them. Right, and we need, and I'm sure we're going to get a new sentencing machine which allows for people who are presented continuing threat to be recalled to prison when there's the slightest sign of them, you know, uh, acting in a way which presents a risk to the public. Yeah, but, but what about what about you don't let them actually let them out? What about we change the sentencing structure for terrorism somehow? Right, right, and that, and that, that is entirely possible. But you can't do it retrospectively. It can't be done in relation. Why not? That happened in the past. Well, because we live in a country which is defined by laws and... Uh, and yeah, but I think it's time to stop hiding... With respect, David, I think it's time to stop hiding behind that. Because these well, people... We're not, we're, not, these, yeah, we're not the Soviet Union, or we're not, you know... Uh, we don't need to become the Soviet Union, but we have a clear and present threat issued by people who are quite happy to know that they're threatening us, and they're quite happy for us to know that they're threatening us, and who don't care that we know because they will kill as many people as they can for this ridiculous and dopey cause that they have. You can't send people to prison without a law that creates a criminal offence that allows them to go to prison. So, you know, this can be done going forward, but you can't do it looking back. No, I'm not talking about locking people up who haven't done anything. I'm talking about keeping people in who have done something. Right, but they've been given a sentence at the point at which they were sentenced. Yeah, now yeah, but, yeah but, but I mean, even even when even when even when you rent a mobile phone, David, the terms and conditions can change while you've got it, and something can, can you know, why yeah, can't we change the terms and conditions a of phone contract and putting somebody in prison? Yeah, it's a lot more dangerous when you're messing about with people's lives than it is when your mobile phone contract suddenly doesn't include insurance cover. But you know, they That's tell all. you. Sure. Can I move this off that subject very slightly for a second? Because yeah. I found a very interesting uh, tweet uh, from uh, from the uh, election campaign from October of last year. Right. Uh, the MP for Stresson, Belle Rivera, as the MP, and she says, as Tories have repeatedly attacked our civil liberties, as threatened MP, I would stand up against attempts to undermine our human rights and against discriminatory, discriminatory counter-terrorism policies like prevent. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted when I saw that because that's the local MP for stress, basically saying that prevents the thing that is designed to identify and prevent terrorist attacks before they happen and keep people out of extremism and radicalisation ought to be scrapped. 
And uh, that, that is really a perfect example of a tweet that hasn't aged at all well. Yes, no, I, I get that. And I fear that there are too many people who would agree with that particular tweet and that particular sentiment as well. However, uh, that is presumably not the view of the government. Priti Patel uh, has made it very clear since she became Home Secretary that she wants to make this a much tougher sentencing structure, that she wants to make things different, and she wants to make Britain a safer place for ordinary people to walk around uh, without you know, getting some jihadi running down the street with a knife that they've stolen from a nearby shop. Right, and because she's a Democrat, and a democratic country from a democratic uh, uh, party, the Conservative Party, that respects the rule of law, she knows and she will only ever be able to do that sort of thing prospectively. There is no way, there is simply no mechanism whereby people who have already been sentenced can have their sentences... I understand uh, that. I understand that. But the people who are given sentences surely can be told you will serve that sentence out. There's absolutely nothing in the law book which says that they must be released early, is there? No, there is. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but, um, but that one of the basic principles of, of sentencing is that you can't change the regime under which people are sentenced. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is that leaving, letting people out early is a kind of a gift, right? It's something which is well, granted. It's not something which is written down. It's not something which, when you get sentenced to 10 years in prison, everybody goes, don't worry, you'll get out after five. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem of, of terminology, though, because, you know, for, since the 1980s, we have had, well, we've always had a sort of early release regime, but since, certainly since the 1980s, there's always been a regime in place that basically requires you to serve part of your sentence in prison, and then for the rest of it, you are subject to the power to be instantly recalled to prison, and people are instantly recalled to prison under that power. Now, if what you said was that somebody had not a 10-year sentence where they get out at five years, but rather a five-year sentence where they were subject to recall for another five years, then I think people would be happier with that. But it's because we talk about it in terms of early release that we have this problem. The crucial thing is that we have an extended period uh, during which if a person shows signs of re-offending, they could be recalled to prison. And if we call it early release, it makes people unhappy. But if we were call it, to call it something else, then I, it would still perform the same function. And what about the fact of uh, what happened in Northern Ireland? during the time of the Troubles, because there were plenty of things that changed there about the way that people were locked up, about the way that people were held, and about the way uh, that internment worked. Yeah, but what ultimately, uh, uh, we ultimately beat the IRA by completely infiltrating their entire organisation and putting them into a position... Yes, but what I'm saying from a legal, pers from, from a legal perspective, though, David, we were able to do things judiciously and within the judicial system um, which meant that that worked outside of what you might otherwise normally call the democratic legal process. Right, right, right. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in favour of bringing back internment. Yeah, but what I'm saying is it's, it's been done before, so I'm not saying yeah. we bring back internment. What I'm saying is, is that your argument that, you know, you can't change the law uh, just because it feels like something you want to do, it turns out, yes, you can. Well, yeah, yeah but these people have not been sentenced yeah, well, there were plenty of people who were arrested on the streets of Belfast who hadn't been uh, found guilty of anything either. Right, and these sorts of things create huge, huge problems for countries going forward. I mean, you remember that America did it uh, to all Japanese citizens, or many Japanese citizens, during the Second World War. Yeah. We, interned, uh, we interned Germans in Britain with perhaps less controversy uh, during the Second World War. But... Um, uh, well, I don't want to be blasé about this, but, but I was really impressed by the resilience of people in Stratford. 
to what was going on. You know, the cafe owner. No, we're all very resilient. No, we're all terribly resilient, you know, David. I mean, I was sitting yesterday. No, listen, I was I was sitting there yesterday watching Sky News, thinking actually, you know, they're making more of this than they need to. But that's only because we've been conditioned to expect every so often uh, some nutter to go waving a knife down the street and stabbing people. But what that's I do true. hope we, but what I hope we never see is what they saw in Paris in the Bataclan, where you suddenly get gangs of people getting out of cars with submachine guns just killing people at random. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and then, and then, then I'll be asking you why you were complacent. Yeah, but, you know, in a situation like the Bataclan, that was clearly a phenomenal failure of, uh, of police intelligence and security services intelligence. Yes. We like to think we're rather better at that sort of thing in the United Kingdom. Yes, I know, but I think it's but time it, we stopped preening ourselves on our intelligence knowledge and actually got down to punishing some more of these people. Listen, David, we've got to run. Appreciate it. Sorry about the bad line. If you were listening to David there, the line was not brilliant, uh, but uh, we got from David some very interesting bits of information, I think. His argument is you can't re-sentence people who've already been re-sentenced, uh, who have already been sentenced, and you can't stop people from being released when they've already been told that they're going to be released. Well, I disagree with all that. I think it's time we change the way that we do everything. Uh, we have done it before. It's nonsense to say that the judicial system cannot be altered by politicians, because it can. And if the police are saying somebody shouldn't be released because they're too dangerous, then for God's sake, don't release them. It's that simple. This is Talk Radio. It goes without saying to all those conspiracy theorists who may still be in existence, all those believers in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, or who think that Elvis is shortly to be found on Mars, it goes without saying that the NHS is not on the table. And we will not accept any diminution in food, hygiene, or animal welfare standards. But I must say to the America bashers in this country, if there are any, in doing free trade deals, we will be governed by science and not by mumbo jumbo. Because the potential is enormous. And, of course, that brings me to the other area where the potential is perhaps even greater. Let's leave Boris Johnson there. He's talking in Greenwich. He's making out that uh, we are no longer uh, the Clark Kent, the mild-mannered uh, trade negotiator. We are now Superman. Uh, so we're going to don a pair of uh, fancy pants and a cape and a big S. Uh, on the front, or a big B, maybe. Let's talk to Jill Rutter, who is Senior Research Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe. Jill, um, that's quite a speech, isn't it? Uh, it sounds like quite a speech. Um, I'm only just catching what you're what you're broadcasting. I mean, that's clearly the Prime Minister, uh, you know, limbering up for loads of cartoons of him in Superman outfits. Of course, the last Prime Minister that happened to was John Major. I'm not sure it's necessarily the best image for him. No. But uh, but anyway, we'd be hoping to do that. But uh, what was quite interesting, I thought, was. Uh, was there was some quite interesting internal contradictions in uh, in that speech, even in the little snippet you had there. Um, for example, the Prime Minister uh, slagging off countries who use trade policy as an instrument of foreign policy, yeah. and then saying, but, you know, don't listen to any of those America bashers. I wonder how the American ambassador who appeared to be in the audience took yes. that. Because the first bit you'd think was a bit of a sort of uh, biff at the US. And then he seemed to be saying, but, you know, don't, don't believe those people who don't think the but US... But he has, he has a sort of strangely awkward agility. And I know that even in itself sounds contradictory. But he does seem to be able to, to, to sort of straddle those two things. Because on the one hand, uh, he can be friends with Trump. And on the other hand, he can announce that he's going to do a deal with Huawei. Uh, on the one hand, he can say, you know, let's not be bashing America 
America, but hey, how about you get rid of those tariffs on Scotch whiskey? So, I mean, he's, he's kind of... He's, I mean, I'm, I've been very impressed with Boris Johnson. You know, I, I said during the election campaign, actually, that I thought, and you and I, you chaired a brilliant panel that I was on um, uh, back in the day, and, and we, we thought to ourselves... Um, Hang on, he's not as brilliant as we think, this Boris Johnson guy. He's not that great of an orator. He's not brilliant at debating. He doesn't make terrific speeches and public appearances. You know, are we sure about this? Well, I don't know. I mean, what we do know is that so far from Boris Johnson, we've had actually just a lot of campaigning. Yeah. Uh, because actually when he took power back in, uh, back in July, he basically ran a four-month election campaign. We do know that actually one of his, you might say, strengths or weaknesses, depending on which way it turns out, is that he doesn't seem to be at all troubled by holding two inconsistent positions at once. Right. Uh, now, that could be a source of great flexibility. So actually, in the same speech, he can you know, say, actually, I'm going to do this great deal. I'm going to base it all on science. Uh, but we're going to uphold animal welfare standards. We're going to do this, this mm. and this. The US would say, actually, your animal welfare standards got nothing to do with science, guys. It's just protectionism and things like that. So he doesn't seem to be particularly troubled by that. That can make him quite agile. It's also quite difficult, though, to know exactly where he's heading because, you know, there could be lots of different Boris Johnsons out there. And at some point, uh, he's going to have to sort of make some choices and then we'll know who the real Boris Johnson is. And that's actually basically what this year is going to be about. I suppose that's true. But also, I think we do live in a kind of politically uh, topsy-turvy world, don't we? And there's no black and white, really, anymore. It's all about grey areas. And so for him to be occupying that sort of grey mass, I suppose, is, is what you might expect. And also, um, yeah, I agree that he's been doing an awful lot of campaigning and making a lot of promises, but he has managed to get us out of the European Union, which, which a lot of people said he couldn't do. Um, I think most people would have said he could do it if he signed up basically to the deal that Theresa May was offered, that the EU offered back in, uh, in February 2018, where it said, here's a Northern Ireland protocol, if you're happy to sign up to that, then you can get out. Theresa May, I think supported by Boris Johnson, who then was Foreign Secretary, said no British Prime Minister would sign up to a deal that put down a border on the Irish Sea. So actually, I think, you know, it's quite interesting. Boris Johnson made a clear tactical decision in early October that actually a border in the Irish Sea, you know, reneging on his promises to the Democratic Unionists was a price worth paying for more freedom, not for Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland will be in a different regime for trading with goods with the rest of the EU. But what he has done is said, OK, I'm prepared to sign up a deal that takes Great Britain, England, Scotland and Wales, out of a close relationship with the, the EU. And if the price is that I have to have a different regime for Northern Ireland, we're waiting to see how different it is, because that depends on where we end up. With yeah, the it may end up not being that's actually... that's the price worth paying, and that's not, why he did his deal. Yeah, it may not actually be that different. Well, no, it's not just how he did his deal, because he came back with the deal from Brussels, don't forget, and it was voted down once again by Parliament. So no, then, it wasn't voted, so, Mike. It wasn't voted so he down then, by so Parliament. So he then... Well, it was. He then, it wasn't voted down by Parliament. It was passed by Parliament. It got a majority of 30 on second reading. Uh, if you remember, what Parliament voted down, actually Parliament was quite right to vote down, was the ridiculously short timetable yeah. that Boris Johnson wanted them to put it through under. And that was just because he'd signed up to leaving by the 31st of October. Well, all right, I, well, let me rephrase it then. It was, frustra no, it was frustrated by Parliament. Yeah, it was frustrated he was by Parliament. He didn't get what he, he didn't... You're, well, you're absolutely right, is he didn't get it all in his own way in right. Parliament. But Parliament actually... We don't know, of course, whether at the end of the day, you know, Parliament having given that bill second reading, 
he could say, well, actually, they'd amend it to They might well have done. And certainly like there, was, there, was, there were certainly suggestions they that they were going to do that. And the Oliver Letwin move, which made us all turn up for work on a Saturday, and I was one of those people, I'm afraid. It's uh, not, that I, not that I bear a grudge <laughs> for any reason at all. But, you know, the thing is that, you know, we, I, that could have gone on forever. And what he's now achieved is something that nobody thought he could achieve, which is a majority of 80, uh, and the ability to now negotiate without the frustrations of Parliament blocking every single time he tries to do anything. And so, you know, it remains to be seen. But, you know, the piece in the Times I'm reading today about uh, the, the, the choice between sort of a, an effective Australia no deal or a Canada sort of, you know... French-type uh, deal. We shall see whether whether that all pans out. It seems to me at the moment they're all just talking um, and sort of warning each other about things which may end up all going away. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there, actually, that what we're seeing is yeah, very much the sort of phony wall phase yeah. of both sides talking quite tough, putting down sort of their markers in the sand. Uh, the interesting question, I think this is really the interesting question on Boris Johnson, is that... You know, Theresa May boxed herself in very early with her red lines, but didn't then show much nimbleness and flexibility and, you know, was clearly very tortured by the whole process. I think that, you know, if you're looking at Boris Johnson, what he's got going for him is actually, you know, when he puts his mind to it, he is prepared to do a deal and that he sort of sends a bit quite like uh, President Trump. He'll sort of, you know, cut his losses and take take the deal that's on offer if, mm. it thinks, if he thinks it suits him. He's in a much stronger parliamentary position because of his stunning election victory, and don't take anything away from him on that. That really was, you know, confounded everybody uh, that he managed to turn, you know, actually fascinatingly turning a sort of third, third election for a party into a yeah. much bigger majority. People don't usually do that. I mean, he did do it by running against the record of the Conservative government. <laughs> well, also interesting, I think, no he, he, he did what all good politicians and good leaders do, is he actually reacted to what the people he thought wanted, and he gave yeah, them what they I wanted, think, which I was Brexit. The big, the big advantage Boris Johnson has is he may not be the sort of purest Brexiteer in the sort of you know, eyes of Nigel Farage and Steve Bakers. I think they still probably think he's a bit suspicious, but... But he is uh, yeah, somebody who campaigned for leave and therefore has credibility with Brexiters. He is also, frankly, a hugely better salesperson mm. than Theresa May ever was. And I think you're hearing a bit of this today. I mean, it may not all add up or be all massively coherent, but Boris Johnson's speeches are yeah, hugely better sales jobs um, than the ones that Theresa May would deliver. Yeah, and it does appear that behind the scenes he does have some pretty capable people at least strategising. You might not like the way they're doing it. You might not like the Dominic Cummings of this world telling ITN reporters, I'm not going to talk to you, I'm just going to keep asking me stupid questions, I'm going back to work on the night that we leave the European Union. But, you know, um, they've got a grip of, of, of the ball and nobody else is, is, is dictating the play, it seems to me, at the moment. The as political strategists, I think they're clearly absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I think the interesting question in the test over the next four years is are they as good at governing and actually making all those critical decisions and actually making things happen? Because yeah. that's a difficult thing in government. It's easy to make speeches in government. It's easy to make big commitments and stuff like that. What really matters is the follow-through. And at the end of the day, after four years, what are we going to be judging them by? We're going to be judging them by actually have public services got any better is there any indication 
that you know the big leveling up agenda you know doing something to those places that felt that actually they'd lost out economically uh, while other bits of the country had thrived will they be able to show anything on the ground for those areas and will Boris Johnson actually have sort of managed to think managed to have got to a place where by and large most people including those people who voted Remain and still at the election weren't reconciled to the result where they're saying, actually, you know, it wasn't nearly as bad as we thought it might. And actually, we're not still saying, still playing sort of Brexit blame games, you know, for years. Well, I mean, happily for Boris as well, there's, there's plenty of derangement syndrome still going on out there and lots of people still moaning and groaning about everything going to be terrible at some point or other. And, it, and the, the more it doesn't happen, uh, the more power to his elbow in a way. I was interested in that piece that you posted on your Twitter account uh, by Ooh. Jean Pisani Ferry, you know, the... Um, the Bruegel.org piece about how it could end up, actually, that this is a far more significant trade negotiation for the EU, in a way, than it is for the UK. Well, what I thought was quite interesting about that was uh, was actually saying, you know, yeah, I mean, saying, you know, let's, let's think about cooperation, but actually one of the government's arguments is that, uh, which Monsieur Pazoniferu was going on about, is that you know, the UK in sort of new areas, so new tech, AI, all that sort of thing, mm. will be able, it won't be as slow moving and lumbering as the EU, because the EU has to work by consensus of what was the 28, now it's the 27. It has to work. So it's always slow. And actually, it's quite hard when it realizes it's done sort of got slightly stuck to change things in the yeah. EU. So, you know, actually, the UK acting alone, if we've got really good science and we've got, you know, very high quality politicians and political leadership could get ahead. And actually, the UK has always had this aspiration that we would be you know, getting out ahead and setting the new regulatory standards. So essentially, people would go around and say, well, actually, who's got the best way of doing this and who might we copy and that actually might sort of challenge back into the EU and we might yeah. find that we can influence the EU from outside. So that's, yeah, that's a very hopeful vision. It's quite an interesting thing for somebody, you know, French person writing for a Brussels-based think tank to be writing, which is why I thought was really <laughs> worth Well, exactly. And also, the thing, I was never convinced by this argument that was put out by, by those who were in favour of the EU who said, well, you know, it's all very well saying you can do your own trade negotiations, but look how long it took us to get a trade negotiation sorted out with Canada and with Chile and with some of those countries in South America, you know, 20-plus years. And you go, well, that's not because it's a hard trade negotiation. That's because you've got 27 other countries that you've got to try and make happy which makes it a lot longer of a process, surely. Well, it, a lot of countries sort of take quite a long time to do it. So there's one thing about negotiating with the EU. I mean, the trouble for the UK is the UK wants to set up doing four or five big trade negotiations simultaneously. And the yeah. one thing we do know about the UK is that we might have lots of very good people. You know, Boris Johnson there was talking about, uh, about the teams at the Department for International Trade and the lawyers and the economists and things like that. Uh, you might have lots of people there, but they, by and large, they bought it as a bit of experience, but yeah, most of the homegrown talent isn't very experienced at doing this. So we've got a bit of a learning curve to do. And what we don't know yet, and I think this is a big question in all these trade deals, is one of the reasons why the EU and other countries find trade deals quite difficult is they involve making really difficult trade-offs because in any trade deal, we are trading... Yeah, we are trying to get more access to 
uh, their market and the other country is trying to get better access to our market. And that means in any trade deal, there are inevitably winners and losers. What we don't know yet of our ministers is, you know, how ready are they to make those difficult trade-offs, to basically say, for example, to Scottish beef farmers or Welsh lamb farmers, we've done this great deal with Australia or New Zealand. It's going to be great for services. That's the big UK's, what they call in trade, offensive ask. We're getting you know, loads more for our services in those markets. It's quite difficult to do that through trade deals, but let's say we managed to do that. But actually, we're going to open up the UK markets to loads more New Zealand lamb, loads more Australian beef. Uh, are they prepared to face down the farmers and say, you're going to take a hit for the rest of us? Because that's actually the sort of thing that is the politics of trade policy. And one of the things that ministers are doing is they're about to discover that taking back control means taking responsibility. And they won't be able to do what they've done to date, which is say, well... You know, we can't make more progress on agriculture and EU trade negotiations. Sure, but that's but that's presumably precisely why they want to take back control. Jill, listen, we've got to run. I'm sorry, we're terribly late, but thank you so much for joining us. Jill Russell there uh, from UK in a changing Europe. The whole point, surely, of trading with other countries, with your own belief system and with your own trading points, is that that's what you wanted to do in the first place. You didn't want to be told by some uh, sort of rather overarching group, this is how we're going to do trade with Australia, and you'll just have to go along with it. That's why we left the EU, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are, of course, here all the way through until one o'clock. There's a podcast every single day as well that goes out uh, after the live stream has ended. There is a live stream out there on YouTube, out there on Facebook, out there on Twitter as well. Join any one of those three. Uh, the Facebook one uh, is a little bit iffy today. And apparently the YouTube one is also buffering quite a bit. We're not quite sure why. There's plenty of uh, tinfoil hattery going on, though, on the old uh, uh, YouTube feed. Some people are claiming that this is, in fact, a recorded show uh, and that's why I won't tell you what the time is. I don't tell you what the time is because I assume that you have a watch uh, or indeed a clock uh, around you somewhere but what I can tell you for those of you who think that it's time for me to tell you the time I'll tell you what the time is it's time for you to get a life. El Plankovich. Let's talk to Christopher Snowden head of lifestyle economics at the IEA. Christopher a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, I couldn't believe my eyes when I read this story this morning. I thought, surely this is a mistake. Surely this is just some kind of idea that's been floated uh, by the energy regulator Ofgem uh, to change the way that we heat our homes and to completely and utterly insist that we drive an electric car. But it turns out this is what they want us to do and they want to charge us more for it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is all part of the net zero target that was waved through in Parliament last year without even... A vote. Um, and yes, it, I mean, the wheels are in motion. This is not really up for discussion anymore. It's just a matter of how you go about doing it. The uh, electric car issue is considered to be sort of the low hanging fruit. It's considered to be about the easiest thing to decarbonize is private transport. Then you've got your heating. Um, 26 million gas boilers need to be taken out and replaced, preferably with electric boilers, but if not that, then hydrogen boilers and then you start moving on to the more difficult stuff well i mean yeah but where, how do they have the right to do it i mean surely uh, the old phrase an englishman's home is his castle is still uh, apparently the case i mean can you actually have to do you have to open your door to these people uh, who want to come in and see what sort of uh, gas boiler you've got so they can rip it out and make you buy another one 
Well, they they will know what kind of bottle you've got. I mean, obviously, the government is working very closely with the utilities companies in doing this. I'm not exactly sure what the legal situation uh, is, but uh, at some point, if all else fails, they'll just say that it is illegal to have a, a gas boiler in a home. It's already illegal to fit new homes with gas boilers. Is it? Yeah, as of, I think, this year. So what about those the, 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 the combi boilers? No, I thought that was the answer some, some years ago, wasn't it? Um, they're very convenient. Um, they're fairly efficient, but they still run on on gas. You know, right. I mean, in order to achieve net zero, you really have to deal with all uh, domestic and industrial heating. You have to get all vehicles over to electricity, which is, is, is kind of you know relatively easy with cars. There is no um, you know, HGVs or the solar powered tractors. I mean, this stuff is very very difficult to. Uh, to deal with. And the the bottom line is that there are things that we can do with existing technology, which will get us some of the way there. It's extremely expensive and be inconvenient, and it will annoy a lot of people having... The, yeah, but if you haven't got the money, it's one, it's one thing for them to come after people, say, who are on, you know, higher income brackets and say, right, you've got to have an electric car. But what if you're not on the high income bracket and you're on, say, minimum wage and you're driving around in an old, you know, uh, jalopy, for want of a better word, and you haven't got the wherewithal to get an electric car, what happens then? Uh, well, I think the government will kick that can down the road. I mean, we have got 30 years before we have to reach this target. I think we've got 20 with vehicles. They are hoping that enough people with a bit of money buy electric cars and then you open up a much cheaper second-hand market. And to be fair, electric cars are at the moment much cheaper to run. So once we can get down the initial cost of buying the, the car, yeah. which for most people will involve buying a second-hand version, um, then it's not, it's not that bad a thing. It's not economic madness, actually, to get everybody over to electric vehicles. The, the tough stuff is, yes, with your, with your heater, which will be more expensive, um, and uh, for the, I mean, the charge points, I mean, the, buying the car is one thing, um, but you've got to actually charge it. Most mm. people don't have a garage. Most people park on their street. Yeah. They don't know what particular spot on their street they're going to be able to squeeze into every, every evening. Um, so you're going to have to have electric charge points essentially outside every front door. In Britain, yes. So I mean, I must admit, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally against electric cars. I'm not totally against the idea of being more green. I'm just totally against the idea of being forced to do something if you don't particularly want to do it. I mean, one of the things that I'm always quite uh, uh, sort of complimentary about is in the part of South London where I live, the street on my uh, uh, where I live has actually got electric power points on all of the street lamps, which I think is quite nifty and quite clever. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, There's a little blue can... light now that comes out of the street lamp. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I think we will move over to having them everywhere. The question is, what, what does it cost? Yeah. And uh, what kind of time frame are we going to do this? We've never had any really serious debate in this country about net zero. Most people are vaguely aware of it. They're vaguely aware, perhaps, that uh, Extinction Rebellion wants to achieve it in five years rather than in 30 years. But that's been the, the level of debate. You know, shall we do it tomorrow or yeah. shall we do it in a few decades' time? There's never been much of a public discussion about the cost of it, what's it what it's going to involve for individuals. And that's the problem. Capital. And also, who is going to be making all the profits out of it? Because there's a fair amount of that going on as well. Yeah, well, the utility companies and the National Grid are all quite happy to go along with this. I mean, not that the utilities really have much of a, a choice in the matter. Um, so they'll be making money in a different way. Um, the idea is to get things mostly onto wind energy. But there again, you have a huge problem. I mean, aside from the fact that wind energy is really quite unreliable, yeah. um, once you've got the transport system decarbonized, you've got everybody off fossil fuels, once you've got the domestic heating 
system decarbonized and it's electric, you, you've suddenly increased your demand for electricity about threefold. So right. we're going to need to create about three times as much electricity as we do now, and we're not meeting our current electricity requirements um, through rene- renewables, nowhere near. Right, exactly right. And what about people that have got uh, oil tankers? You know, many people who live in more rural parts of the country, um, they don't have electricity, they don't have gas, they have oil. Yeah, again, that's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, the hydrogen is considered to be the sort of second best option for people who really cannot use uh, electric heating uh, because it's actually very low emission. It, it, it emits primarily water. So I, I would imagine some sort of canal gas with hydrogen might be seen as the option there, but I'm not quite yeah. sure. So what, you'd have to have the old canisters there or something? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, see, not a lot of people like all that sort of thing. And the other problem I've got with all of this is that, you know, it's all very well saying, you know, uh, well, we'll be, ha- we'll be needing to produce three times as much electricity. Everybody will have all of these different appliances and they'll have them run on electricity. One of the things the government will lose for straight off the top, if they're going to be true to themselves, is all the road tax that gets paid by people who are burning up ghastly, you know, fossil fuel run diesel machines and petrol machines, because when you have an electric car currently, you don't pay road tax. Yes, I mean, they're, they're basically subsidised and the, the fuel is, is very cheap. At some point, once you reach a tipping point and there's more people with electric cars than petrol and diesel cars, yeah, the government will face exactly that problem. But at that stage, I think they will start saying, OK, it's time to get rid of these tax breaks. We need to start taxing electric cars for using the roads as well. Right. Now, I've got an interesting text here. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit long, but it's from a friend of mine uh, who's a very well-off guy, uh, but is a businessman. And he was convinced a few years ago, seven years ago, to go green, right? Uh, so he decided to ditch all of his gas central heating. This is a house that he's got in Scotland, which is quite a big house. Changed over to an air source heat pumps under a scheme which was called RHI. He said it cost around 20000 to put in, but the promise was that 1700 a year would come back under their scheme for 10 years, and there would also be savings on reduced gas bills. However, uh, the people who put it in, uh, it meant another, uh, uh, cost another extra £10,000 to put in, right? Um, the, the, the further cost of £8,000 for an air system, it didn't work. They did not then qualify for the, uh, for the grant scheme. They were told they had to put smart meters in. The net result, basically, is the green system that was supposed to heat the home properly didn't, put, didn't work at all, and he's now 50 grand out of pocket, had nothing from off-gem at all. I can well believe it. I myself have got uh, solar panels. I took advantage of the government scheme about 10 years ago when they were dishing it out for free. Uh, and you have the option of buying them for £16,000, but supposedly making your money back in only a few years and then being in profit. Or you could do what I did, which is just take them for nothing. Mm. You can use the, renew, uh, the, the solar power uh, in the daytime if you're in the house, and if you're not using it, it gets fed back into the grid. And these solar power panels, they've just been breaking down constantly. They haven't worked actually for about six months. I'm waiting for a guy to come around to repair them. I'm very pleased I didn't shell out myself. Yeah. Do you have any kind of... Do, does, does my friend Donald have any kind of a white place to go here? Can he can he kind of get any of that money back? I've no idea. It would depend entirely on the contracts. But I, ne- I never trusted the government in the first place with this particular scheme. I thought if I get these solar panels for free, then I can't really go wrong. Worst thing can happen is I just don't get any electricity out of them. Um, but a lot of promises were made, both on solar and wind turbines and the kind of heating your friends talking about. Yeah. And 
Uh, but that's the, that. So there, therein, therein lies the problem. Christopher, appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed. We've got to run. Christopher Snowden, uh, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. The case study there from uh, my friend Donald, who many of you will have heard on this radio station before. Unbelievable. You get absolutely nowhere uh, because the people who are running these schemes don't know what they're doing. That's the other problem. So if some bloke knocks on your door from Ofgem and says, you know, you need to change over to uh, uh, electricity, tell them to get lost. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Matthew Wright coming up at one o'clock. We've got loads of your calls to take. We will take them very shortly. 0344 499 1000. Tomorrow uh, on the show, I'm very pleased to say that uh, Susan Hall is coming in. Susan Hall is, of course, the leader of the Conservative Party group uh, at the Greater London Assembly. That's the woman uh, who takes Sadiq Khan to task day after day after day. We'll have lots to say to her. She'll have lots to say to us about not only what's going on inside uh, the Greater London Assembly and what's going on uh, with knife crime, what's going on with anti-terror police uh, and policing in general in London, but also what is going on uh, in all sorts of other areas where Susan uh, has quite a firm view of things. She's pretty fed up, by the way, uh, if you follow her on Twitter, about Harry and Meghan. We haven't mentioned the royal family yet, but I'm sure they might get a mention on the old planks of the, uh, of the week coming up tomorrow because they have still been practicing practising plenty of plankery, uh, from William at the BAFTAs to, of course, um, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan and the news at the weekend. And not only uh, are they now uh, apparently going to be asking and have been asking their bodyguards to go out on errands for them, uh, getting cheese sandwiches perhaps and all that sort of thing, uh, but also uh, that Meghan Markle has been talking to her very good friend, um, her, um, uh, her sort of voice coach and her... Uh, Inspiration, who does a reality TV show about second weddings, and she's apparently going to be making some cameo appearances uh, on that show. I can't wait. Let's talk to Phil, uh, who's in Stafford. He wants to talk uh, about the European Union. Hello, Phil. Hello, Mike. How are you? Great show again. Thank you very much indeed. What do you want to tell me? Um, well, with all this fog that's uh, lingering about in relation to these trade deals that we've got going on, I think sometimes we forget some of the basics. Um, things like what's primarily important to the EU is trading goods, yeah. whereas it's trading services to us. And there's never been a single market in relation to services. Right. So if we don't get a single market or we, don't, or we don't get an approximation to the single market out of this trade deal, then it's business as usual. Uh, as far as uh, as far as that aspect. What you yeah, mean? So finan- what you saying? Financial services won't change anyway. Well, uh, if we well. The, Barnier today was, was saying uh, that he's looking for a free trade deal, uh, or he's offering a free trade deal with certain caveats in relation to services as, as well as goods. Yeah. But we've never had um, a single market in relation to services. Right. So anything down there, and that, this is going to be a primary consideration for us in the future, uh, the services. We can really tailor these deals to what we want. And as I think David Davis said uh, 12 months or more ago, the last 20 trade deals the EU have done have never really considered services. Right. So, this is, so this is a big step for us. And in relation to, to goods, the other thing that we've forgotten is that the IMF immediately prior to 2016 said that the pound was overvalued by about 14%. And guess what? When, when it devalued following the referendum, uh, it dropped by about 14%. Right. So, so when people talk about 5% trade tariffs here and 10% there, we're still quidding. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, I think the I think the problem is as well, Phil, that people like Barnier are so used to giving out their conditions as if nobody's going to argue with them that that's what they think it, it works like. But they're now having to deal with us not only as a partner uh, possibly in the future in trade, but also as a competitor in the future in trade with other countries. So they're going to be a bit careful. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the point I was trying to make really is that the the, uh, the German car industry, for example, but other other industries have had this 14% whammy from when the pound devalued in 2016. Mm. So any trade tariffs that we impose on them is a double whammy to them. Uh, they've had to absorb those costs uh, first time round. Germany's already hovering on the brink of a, of a recession. So, you know, we've, we've got to play it right, but I think we've got a lot of cards uh, that we can play here. Oh, certainly. I totally agree with you. And talking of the car business, what about Nissan's uh, reported Brexit contingency plan, which came out, uh, I think, late last night? Phil, Phil, thanks for your call. Uh, in which they said they would cease manufacturing in France, they would close their factory in Barcelona, move production of the Micra from France to the UK, and keep their Sunderland plant, uh, where they employ 6,000 people. So, in fact, you know, the idea that suddenly everybody's going to up sticks and disappear out of Britain, one of the greatest places to actually have a factory and have a business in the world, uh, why would you? We've got a highly skilled workforce. Uh, we've got a very, very good relationship with business. Boris Johnson is going to improve on that. Uh, why on earth would you bother being in the European Union if you didn't have to be? And I think the reason that Nissan were was because they quite liked the idea of having plants in England, in Spain and in France. Now they can do it all in the UK. Let's talk to Gerard, who's in crew. Hello, Gerard. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Sunny shining in, in crew. Is but it? I was told that would never happen again after Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've never seen so many people with no sense of humour as I did I on Saturday. I put out a tweet, which was largely tongue-in-cheek, when I woke up after the celebrations of the night before. Uh, and I said, happy Saturday, everybody. Uh, please let us know if you've run out of any medicines or food. Right, ready. Right? <laughs> and all these people, right, these, these sort of num numbskulls from the Remain side were like, you idiot, it's the transition period, you know. And, you know, it's like, yeah, but you people have been telling us it's going to be a disaster since the referendum result. Yeah, well, they haven't got a sense of humour. I loved that tweet. Did did look at it and had a laugh. And, of <laughs> course, I, I've been... The only downside to this is over the past few months is that my wife has said I'm sounding like you because I'm screaming plank at everybody now <laughs> and I've never used that word in my life before. It's so. such a, but it's so apt, though. I mean, yeah. it's like you can use it ten times an hour at this point. Yeah, well, I am doing, and that's the problem at the moment. Right. So. Oh, well. But anyway, back to the House of Lords. Yes. It should be slimmed down to at least half, but it won't be touched, Michael. There's no way in a million years the politicians will go near it because, for me, it's always been the British way of doing corruption. Mm. We never, we don't do brown envelope stuff with cash in the country. We just have a nod and a wink and say, look, there's £350 a day. Right. We'll send you there, mm. friends, donors. And do you know what's interesting? That I didn't, I didn't get this until I spoke to somebody. I can't remember who it was that told me this, but but perhaps the most important reason why it will never be reformed into a proper electable second chamber is because the House of Commons would then lose a bit of their own power, and they don't want to do that because if they had a sort of Senate, the effectively the same thing as the US has, mm. um, which could vote and be more powerful than the House of Lords is on bills and on passing of of, of laws. Uh, the House of Commons would, would, would not be as important as it is now. That may well be the case, but that's a bit too clever for me. But for me, I've always seen it as it's a good insurance policy and a retirement fund for failed politicians. Yeah, right. No, and, I'm sure that's, always, that's part of it as well. 
Yeah, I've always been amazed at how many uh, socialists who hate the Lords take a peerage. Yes. My, my favourite was John Prescott. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, he likes he likes the two Jags, does Prescott. I mean, this is the man, don't forget, who ferried his wife down the seafront uh, because he didn't want to ruin her hair at Labour Party conference, 200 yards. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll come back to you in about 10 years' time, Mike, and we'll probably find the 1,600 Lords of Baronesses, <laughs> yeah. not 800. They built an extension onto Westminster for you. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Let's talk to Dean. Thank you, Ger Gerard, in uh, Abingdon. Dean, hi. Hi, Mike. How are you? Very well, sir. What can I do for you? Um, well, I'd just like to say about the, the, the Chinese virus yeah. thing, yeah? Go on. Um... Uh, you had the sun guy on saying it, mostly elderly people with medical conditions. Yes, yeah? that's that's what we're being told, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but the thing is, um, I I worked in A and E for forty odd years, Mike. Okay. And uh, asthma is on the increase in between the ages of eight and thirty. Right. It's the highest it's ever been in this country. Right. And what was and the reason when you were in well. when you were working in the health business? What was the reason given for that? Sorry, what was when? What, what what was the reason given for why so many young people now have asthma? Basically, uh, contamination or air, air pollution, really? that sort of stuff. You know. Yeah, because like, you see, I've always thought the air pollution was a lot worse when I was growing up. I mean, I used to walk out into the street uh, and you couldn't... I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, when you think about all the smoking chimneys... Well, smoking chimneys up, and, and also unleaded petrol that we had to deal yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. But um, this, uh, I mean, I don't know what's causing it, it you know, but... I uh, I retired last year. Okay. I I uh, had oh during the summer months no end of people with asthma mm. coming in. Okay. And are you saying uh, that I people mean, are... and they were sort of age ranging was like I said from eight to, to thirty. Right. Are you, you saying know, that, um, are you saying that people with asthma, uh, Dean, are more susceptible to coronavirus? Yeah, well, no, I would say if they get, if they get the flu even, uh, mm. that's why they all get vaccinated. Okay. Because, I mean, you know, I mean uh, I'm, I'm yeah, led to believe... Most people with asthma yeah. are offered the vaccination. Yes, the flu vaccination, yes, I'm yeah, sure that's true. You see, so, uh, but what I'm saying is if the virus come in and there's no vaccination, mm. uh, then it could attack them. I'm not saying... I'm not uh, sort of scaremonger or anything like that. I was just trying to level the play field. Right. It's not just old people. No, I think know? I think that's a good point to make, Dean. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Dean's saying basically, you, if you you're know. if you've got asthma, um, you might have to be careful. I presume if you have got asthma, uh, that you would already know that you might be considered to be one of the vulnerable groups, and so uh, you would want to stay away from anyone who might have been in contact with somebody who might have been in contact with the coronavirus. But this is why it seems to me it's very odd to see coach drivers driving coaches without any kind of masks on or any kind of protection of any kind because surely it seems to me if the person sitting next to the driver who happens to be a health worker is fully suited and booted uh, with the old Andromeda strain outfit on uh, in case something contaminates them and they end up dying then it, it's just, it just looks very weird I, I still can't quite fathom how it is that we've got from, on the one hand, people, doctors in this country... Don't forget, the first interview I think I did on this uh, with a professor who claimed to be an expert who basically said to me, there's no reason why we need to screen anyone, absolutely no reason to wear any masks. You know, literally two days later, everybody's wearing masks. The British Airways have cancelled all flights to China and everyone is being screened who has landed here. Now we're actually bringing people back from China to keep them out of harm's way, while at the same time being told that there's really nothing to worry about. It's all a bit odd, isn't it? I mean, I don't quite get it. I know that, uh, you know, there are some medical matters which are beyond me, you know, not many, 
it has to be said. But I just find the whole treatment of this story to be slightly contradictory. You may or may not agree. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's pretty much it for today. Uh, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the first ever show uh, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, outside of the European Union. What a tremendous place to be. I personally, uh, I'm going to wallow in that for a few days. Uh, we'll be back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Hopefully we'll have fixed whatever the problems were today with the live stream, uh, which was for some reason sticking all over the place. And I'm wearing such a nice outfit as well. I'm so sorry if you weren't able to see it. Never mind. Um, I'll be back tomorrow at 10, as I say. Check out the podcast later on. Also check out tonight, uh, late this afternoon, Off Air uh, will be produced uh, downstairs in our video technology department uh, where Talk Radio TV uh, comes from. And we'll be bringing it uh, with me and Belinda DeLucy, uh, who was around on Friday as well, celebrating uh, us leaving the European Union. It's me and Belinda talking about Europe, talking about the future, talking about trade and talking about Nigel Farage. Talk Radio across the UK online, on DAB and on your smart speaker The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio If you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.